6. E said to have been built, possibly many of them were timber structures only, countless small towns and villages most of once possessing a fortress. The name Castle Street remains, though the actual site of the stronghold has long vanished. Sometimes we find a mound which seems to proclaim its position, but memory is silent, and the people of England, if the story of the chronicler be true, have to be grateful to Henry I.I who set himself to a work to root up and destroy very many of these adulterine castles which were the abodes of tyranny and oppression. However, for the protection of his kingdom, he raised other strongholds, in the south the Grand Fortress of Dover, which still guards the Straits, in the west, Berkeley Castle, for his friend Robert Fitzharding, ancestor of Lord Berkeley, which has remained in the same family until the present day, in the north, Richmond, Scarborough, and Newcastle upon Tyne, and in the east, or Fort Keep, the same stern Norman keep remains, but you can see some changes in the architecture, the projection of the buttresses is increased, and there is some attempt at ornamentation, or Fort Castle, which some guidebooks and directories will insist on confusing with Oxford Castle and stating that it was built by Robert Doyley in 1072, was erected by Henry II to defend the country against the incursions of the Flemings and to safeguard or Fort Haven. Constone was brought for the stone dressings to windows and doors, parapets and groins, but masses of septaria found on the shore and in the neighboring marshes were utilized with such good effect that the walls have stood the attacks of besiegers and weathered the storms of the east coast for more than seven centuries. It was built in a new fashion that was made in France, and to which our English eyes were unaccustomed, and is somewhat similar in plan to Conisboro Castle, in the Valley of the Don. The plan is circular with three projecting towers, and the keep was protected by two circular ditches, one 15 feet and the other 30 feet distant from its walls. Between the two ditches was a circular wall with parapet and battlements. The interior of the castle was divided into three floors, the towers, exclusive of the turrets, had five, two of which were intersols, and were 96 feet high, the central keep being 70 feet. The oven was at the top of the keep. The chapel is one of the most interesting chambers, with its original altar still in position, though much damaged, and also Piscina, Ombre, and Ciborium. This castle nearly vanished with other features of vanishing England in the middle of the 18th century, Lord Hereford proposing to pull it down for the sake of the material, but, it being a necessary sea mark, especially for ships coming from Holland, who by steering so as to make the castle cover or hide the church thereby avoid a dangerous sandbank called the Whiting. Government interfered and prevented the destruction of the building. C.F. Memorials of Old Suffolk. Page 65. Groza's Antiquities. In these keeps the thickness of the walls enabled them to contain chambers, stairs, and passages. At Guildford there is an oratory with rude carvings of sacred subjects, including a crucifixion. The first and second floors were usually vaulted and the upper ones were of timber. Fireplaces were built in most of the rooms, and some sort of domestic comfort was not altogether forgotten. In the earlier fortresses the walls of the keep enclosed an inner court, which had rooms built up to the great stone walls, the court afterwards being vaulted and floors erected. In order to protect the entrance there were heavy doors with a portcullis, and by degrees the outward defenses were strengthened. There was an outer bailey or court surrounded by a strong wall with a barbican guarding the entrance, consisting of a strong gate protected by two towers, in this lower or outer court are the stables, and the mound where the lord of the castle dispenses justice, and where criminals and traitors are executed, another strong gateway flanked by towers protects the inner bailey, 
on the edge of which stands the keep, which frowns down upon us as we enter. An immense household was supported in these castles. Not only were there men at arms, but also cooks, bakers, brewers, tailors, carpenters, smiths, masons, and all kinds of craftsmen, and all this crowd of workers had to be provided with accommodation by the lord of the castle. Hence a building in the form of a large hall was erected, sometimes of stone, usually of wood, in the lower or upper bailey, for these soldiers and artisans, where they slept and had their meals. Amongst other castles which arose during this late Norman and early English period of architecture we may mention Barnard Castle, a mighty stronghold, held by the Royal House of Belial, the Prince Bishops of Durham, the Earls of Warwick, the Needles, and other powerful families. Sir Walter Scott immortalized the castle in Ropey. Here is his description of the fortress, high crowned he sits, in dawning pale, the sovereign of the lovely vale. While prospects from the watchtower high gleam gradual on the warder's eye, far sweeping to the east he sees down his deep woods the course of Tees, and tracks his wanderings by the steam of summer vapors from the stream, and ere he pace his destined hour by Brackenbury's dungeon tower, these silver mists shall melt away and do the woods with glittering spray. Then in broad luster shall be shown that mighty trench of living stone, and each huge trunk that from the side, reclines him o'er the darksome tide, where Tees. Full many a fathom low, wears with his rage no common foe, nor pedly bank, nor sand bed here, nor clay mound checks his fierce career, condemned to mine a channeled way or solid sheets of marble grey. This lordly pile has seen the Belials fighting with the Scots, of whom John Belial became king, the fierce contests between the warlike prelates of Durham and Barnard's lord, the triumph of the former who were deprived of their conquest by Edward I and then its surrender in later times to the rebels of Queen Elizabeth. Another northern border castle is Norham, the possession of the Bishop of Durham. Built during this period, it was a mighty fortress, and witnessed the gorgeous scene of the arbitration between the rival claimants to the Scottish throne, the arbiter being King Edward I of England, who forgot not to assert his own fancied rights to the overlordship of the northern kingdom. It was, however, besieged by the Scots and valiant deeds were wrought before its walls by Sir William Marmion and Sir Thomas Gray. But the Scots captured it in 1327 and again in 1513. It is now but a battered ruin. Pridhoe, with its memories of border wars, and castle rising, redolent with the memories of the last years of the wicked widow of Edward I.I., belong to this age of castle architecture, and also the older portions of Kenilworth, Pontefract Castle the last fortress that held out for King Charles in the Civil War, and in consequence slighted and ruined, can tell of many dark deeds and strange events in English history. The de Lacy's built it in the early part of the 13th century. Its area was seven acres. The wall of the castle court was high and flanked by seven towers. A deep moat was cut on the western side. Where was the Barbican and Drawbridge? It had terrible dungeons. One a room 25 feet square without any entrance save the trap door in the floor of a turret, the castle passade, in 1310, by marriage to Thomas Earl of Lancaster, who took part in the strife between Edward I.I. and his nobles, was captured, and in his own hall condemned to death. The castle is always associated with the murder of Richard I.I., but contemporary historians, Thomas of Walsingham and Bower the poet, assert that he starved himself to death, others contend that his starvation was not voluntary, while there are not wanting those who say that he escaped to Scotland, lived there many years, and died in peace in the castle of Stirling, an honored guest of Robert I.I.I. of Scotland, in 1419, 
I have not seen the entries, but I am told in the accounts of the Chamberlain of Scotland there are items for the maintenance of the king for eleven years, but popular tales die hard, and doubtless you will hear the groans and see the ghost of the wronged Richard some moonlight night in the ruined keep upon it fragged. He has many companion ghosts the Earl of Salisbury, Richard Duke of York, Anthony Wideville, Earl Rivers and Gray his brother, and Sir Thomas Vaughan, whose feet trod the way to the block, that was worn hard by many victims, the dying days of the old castle made it illustrious, it was besieged three times, taken and retaken, and saw amazing scenes of gallantry and bravery, it held out until after the death of the martyr king, it heard the proclamation of Charles I, but at length was compelled to surrender, and, the strongest inland garrison in the kingdom, as Oliver Cromwell termed it, was slighted and made a ruin, its sister fortress Narasborough shared its fate. Lord Lynn, in Eugene Aram, wrote of it, You will be at a loss to recognize now the truth of old Leland's description of that once stout and gallant bulwark of the north, when he numbered eleven or twelve tours in the walls of the castle, and one very fair beside in the second area. In that castle before nightly murderers of the haughty Becket the Wolsey of his age remained for a whole year, defying the weak justice of the times. There, too. The unfortunate Richard I.I. passed some portion of his bitter imprisonment, and there, after the Battle of Marston Moor, waved the banner of the Loyalists against the soldiers of Lilburn. An interesting story is told of the siege. A youth, whose father was in the garrison, each night went into the deep, dry moat, climbed up the glotches, and put provisions through a hole where his father stood ready to receive them. He was seen at length, fired on by the parliamentary soldiers and sentenced to be hanged in sight of the besieged as a warning to others, but a good lady obtained his respite, and after the conquest of the place was released, the castle then, once the residence of Piers Gaveston, of Henry III, and of John of Gaunt, was dismantled and destroyed, during the reign of Henry III great progress was made in the improvement and development of castle building, the comfort and convenience of the dwellers in these fortresses were considered, and if not very luxurious places they were made more beautiful by art and more desirable as residences. During the reigns of the Edwards this progress continued, and a new type of castle was introduced. The stern, massive, and high-towering keep was abandoned, and the fortifications arranged in a concentric fashion. A fine hall with kitchens occupied the center of the fortress, a large number of chambers were added. The stronghold itself consisted of a large square or oblong like that at Donington, Berkshire and the approach was carefully guarded by strong gateways, advanced works, walled galleries, and barbicans. Deep moats filled with water increased their strength and improved their beauty. We will give some examples of these Edwardian castles, of which Leeds Castle, Count, is a fine specimen. It stands on three islands in a sheet of water about 15 acres in extent, these islands being connected in former times by double drawbridges. It consists of two huge piles of buildings which with a strong gatehouse and barbican form four distinct forts, capable of separate defense should any one or other fall into the hands of an enemy. Three causeways, each with its drawbridge, gate, and portcullis, lead to the smallest island or inner barbican. A fortified mill contributing to the defenses, a stone bridge connects this island with the main island. There stands the constable's tower, and a stone wall surrounds the island and within is the modern mansion. The Maiden's Tower and the Water Tower defend the island on the south. A two-storied building on arches now connects the main island with the Tower of the Gloriad, which has a curious old bell with the Virgin and Child, St. George and the Dragon, and the Crucifixion depicted on it, and an ancient clock. 
the castle withstood a siege in the time of Edward I.I. because Queen Isabella was refused admission. The king hung the governor, Thomas de Culpepper, by the chain of the drawbridge. Henry I.D. retired here on account of the plague in London, and his second wife, Joan of Navarre, was imprisoned here. It was a favorite residence of the court in the 14th and 15th centuries. Here the wife of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, was tried for witchcraft. Dutch prisoners were confined here in 1666 and contrived to set fire to some of the buildings. It is the home of the Wycombe Martin family, and is one of the most picturesque castles in the country. In the same neighborhood is Allington Castle, an ivy-mantled ruin, another example of vanished glory, only to tenements occupying the princely residence of the Wyatts, famous in the history of state and letters. Sir Henry, the father of the poet, felt the power of the hunchback Richard and was racked and imprisoned in Scotland, and would have died in the Tower of London but for a cat. He rose to great honor under Henry the I.I., and here entertained the king in great style. At Allington the poet Sir Thomas Wyatt was born, and spent his days in writing prose and verse, hunting and hawking, and occasionally dallying after mistress and bowline at the neighboring castle of Hover. He died here in 1542, and his son Sir Thomas led the insurrection against Queen Mary and sealed the fate of himself and his race. Hover Castle, to which allusion has been made, is an example of the transition between the old fortress and the more comfortable mansion of a country squire or magnate. Times were less dangerous, the country more peaceful when Sir Geoffrey Boline transformed and rebuilt the castle built in the reign of Edward III by William de Hover, but the strong entrance gate flanked by towers, embattled and machicolated and defended by stout doors and three portcullises and the surrounding moat, shows that the need of defense had not quite passed away. The gates lead into a courtyard around which the hall, chapel, and domestic chambers are grouped. The long gallery and bowline so often traversed with impatience still seems to re-echo her steps, and her bedchamber, which used to contain some of the original furniture, has always a pathetic interest. The story of the courtship of Henry the III with the brown girl with a throat and an extra finger, as Margaret Moore described her, is well known. Her old home, which was much in decay, has passed into the possession of a wealthy American gentleman, and has been recently greatly restored and transformed. Sussex can boast of many a lordly castle, and in its day body must have been very magnificent. Even in its decay and ruin it is one of the most beautiful in England. It combined the palace of the feudal lord and the fortress of a knight. The founder, Sir John Dollingrudge, was a gallant soldier in the wars of Edward III, and spent most of his best years in France, where he had doubtless learned the art of making his house comfortable as well as secure. He acquired license to fortify his castle in 1385, for resistance against our enemies. There was need of strong walls, as the French often at that period ravaged the coast of Sussex burning towns and manor houses. Clark, the great authority on castles, says that, Bodium is a complete and typical castle of the end of the 14th century, laid out entirely on a new site, and constructed after one design and at one period. It but seldom happens that a great fortress is wholly original, of one, and that a known, date, and so completely free from alterations or additions, it is nearly square, with circular tower 65 feet high at the four corners connected by embattled curtain walls, in the center of each of which square towers rise to an equal height with the circular. The gateway is a large structure composed of two flanking towers defended by numerous oilets for arrows, embattled parapets, and deep machicolations. Over the gateway are three shields bearing the arms of Bodium, Dollingrudge, 
and war to you. A huge portcullis still frowns down upon us, and to others oppose the way, while above are openings in the vault through which melted lead, heated sand, pitch, and other disagreeable things could be poured on the heads of the foe. In the courtyard on the south stands the great hall with its oriel, buttery, and kitchen, and amidst the ruins you can discern the chapel, sacristy, ladies' bower, presence chamber. The castle stayed not long in the family of the builder, his son John probably perishing in the wars, and passed to Sir Thomas Lunar, who opposed Richard III, and was therefore attainted of high treason and his castle besieged and taken. It was restored to him again by Henry II, but the Lunars never resided there again. Waller destroyed it after the capture of Randall, and since that time it has been left a prey to the rains and frosts and storms, but manages to preserve much of its beauty, and to tell how noble knights lived in the days of chivalry. Caister Castle is one of the four principal castles in Norfolk. It is built of brick, and is one of the earliest edifices in England constructed of that material after its rediscovery as suitable for building purposes. It stands with its strong defenses not far from the sea on the barren coast. It was built by Sir John Fastolf, who fought with great distinction in the French wars of Henry V and Henry VI, and was the hero of the Battle of the Herrings in 1428 when he defeated the French and succeeded in convoying a load of herrings in triumph to the English camp before Orléans. It is supposed that he was the prototype of Shakespeare's Falstaff, but beyond the resemblance in the names there is little similarity in the exploits of the two heroes. Sir John Fastolf, much to the chagrin of other friends and relatives, made John Poston his heir, who became a great and prosperous man, represented his county in Parliament, and was a favorite of Edward Ivey. Poston loved Caister, his fair jewel, but misfortunes befell him. He had great losses, and was thrice confined in the fleet prison and then outlawed. Those were dangerous days, and friends often quarreled. Hence during his troubles the Duke of Norfolk and Lord Scales tried to get possession of Caister, and after his death laid siege to it, the Postons lacked not courage and determination, and defended it for a year, but were then forced to surrender. However, it was restored to them but again forcibly taken from them. However, not by the sword but by negotiations and legal efforts, Sir John again gained his own, and an embattled tower at the northwest corner, 100 feet high, and the north and west walls remain to tell the story of this brave old Norfolk family, who by their letters have done so much to guide us through the dark period to which they relate. We will journey to the west country, a region of castles. The Saxons were obliged to erect their rude earthen strongholds to keep back the turbulent Welsh, and these were succeeded by Norman keeps. Munmouthshire is famous for its castles. Out of the thousand erected in Norman times 25 were built in that county. There is Chepstow Castle with its early Norman gateway spanned by a circular arch flanked by round towers. In the inner court there are gardens and ruins of a grand hall, and in the outer the remains of a chapel with evidences of beautifully growing vaulting and also a winding staircase leading to the battlements. In the dungeon of the old keep at the southeast corner of the inner court Roger de Britalio, Earl of Hereford, was imprisoned for rebellion against the conqueror, and in later times Henry Martin, the regicide, lingered as a prisoner for thirty years, employing his enforced leisure in writing a book in order to prove that it is not right for a man to be governed by one wife. Then there is Glasmont Castle, the fortified residence of the Earl of Lancaster, Scumthrift Castle. White Castle, the album castrum of the Latin records, the Landrello of the Welsh, with its six towers, Portcullis and Drawbridge flanked by massive towers, Barbican, and other outworks, 
and Raglan Castle with its splendid gateway, its Elizabethan banqueting hall ornament with rich stone tracery, its bowling green, garden terraces, and spacious courts an ideal place for nightly tournaments. Raglan is associated with the gallant defense of the castle by the Marquis of Worcester in the Civil War. Another famous siege is connected with the old castle of Tundon. Tundon was a noted place in Saxon days, and the castle is the earliest English fortress by some 200 years of which we have any written historical record. The Anglo-Saxon chronicler states, under the date 722 AD, this year Queen Athelbridge overthrew Tundon, which she not had before built. The buildings tell their story. We see a Norman keep built to the westward of Inna's earthwork, probably by Henry de Blois, Bishop of Winchester, the warlike brother of King Stephen. The gatehouse with the curtain ending in drum towers, of which one only remains, was first built at the close of the 13th century under Edward I, but it was restored with perpendicular additions by Bishop Thomas Langton, whose arms with the date 1495 may be seen on the escutcheon above the arch. Probably Bishop Langton also built the Great Hall, whilst Bishop Home, who was sometimes credited with this work, most likely only repaired the hall, but tacked onto it the southward structure on pilasters which shows his arms with the date 1577. The hall of the castle was for a long period used as a size courts. The castle was purchased by the Tundon and Somerset Archaeological Society, and is now most appropriately a museum. Tundon has seen many strange sights. The town was owned by the Bishop of Winchester, and the castle had its constable, an office held by many great men. When Lord Daubeny of Barrington Court was constable in 1497 Tundon saw thousands of gaunt Cornishmen marching on to London to protest against the King's subsidy, and they aroused the sympathy of the kind-heart Somerset folk, who fed them, and were afterwards fined for aiding and comforting them. Again, crowds of Cornishmen here flocked to the standard of Perkin Warbeck, the gallant defense of Tundon by Robert Blake, aided by the townsfolk, against the whole force of the Royalists is a matter of history, and also the rebellion of Monmouth, who made Taunton his headquarters. This castle, like every other one in England, has much to tell us of the chief events in our national annals. Taunton and its castle, by D.P. Alfred Memorials of Old Somerset, page 149. In the Principality of Wales we find many noted strongholds Conway, Harlech, and many others. Carnarvon Castle, the repair of which is being undertaken by Sir John P. Leston has no rival among our medieval fortresses for the grandeur and extent of the ruins. It was commenced about 1283 by Edward I but took 40 years to complete. In 1295 a playful North Walyon, named Madoc, who was an illegitimate son of Prince David, took the rising stronghold by surprise upon a fair day, massacred the entire garrison, and hanged the constable from his own half-finished walls. Sir John Pueleston, the present constable, though he derives his patronymic from the base, bloody, and brutal Saxon, is really a warmly patriotic Welshman, and is doing a good work in preserving the ruins of the fortress of which he is the titular governor. We should like to record the romantic stories that have woven themselves around each crumbling keep and bailey court, to see them in the days of their glory when warders kept the gate and watching archers guarded the wall, and the lord and lady and their knights and esquires dined in the great hall and knights practised feats of arms in the tilting ground, and the banner of the Lord waved over the battlements, and everything was ready for war or sport, hunting or hawking, but all the glories of most of the castles of England had vanished, and naught is to be seen but ruined walls and deserted halls, 
Some few have survived and become royal palaces or noblemen's mansions, such are Windsor, Warwick, Rabbi, Elmick, and Randall, but the fate of most of them is very similar. The old fortress aimed at being impregnable in the days of bows and arrows, but the progress of guns and artillery somewhat changed the ideas with regard to their security. In the struggle between Yorkists and Lancastrians many a noble owner lost his castle and his head. Edward I. thinned down castle ownership, and many a fine fortress was left to die. When the Spaniards threatened our shores those who possessed castles tried to adapt them for the use of artillery. And when the Civil War began many of them were strengthened and fortified and often made gallant defenses against their enemies, such as Donington, Colchester, Scarborough, and Pontefract. When the Civil War ended the last bugle sounded the signal for their destruction. Orders were issued for their destruction, lest they should ever again be thorns in the sides of the parliamentary army. Sometimes they were destroyed for revenge, or because of their materials which were sold for the benefit of the government or for the satisfaction of private greed. Lead was torn from the roofs of chapels and banqueting halls. The massive walls were so strong that they resisted to the last and had to be demolished with the aid of gunpowder. They became convenient quarries for stone and furnished many a farm, cottage and manor house with materials for their construction. Henceforth the old castle became a ruin. In its silent marshy moat reeds and rushes grow, and ivy covers its walls and trees had sprung up in the quiet and deserted courts. Picnic parties encamp on the green sward, and excursionists amuse themselves in strolling along the walls and wonder why they were built so thick, and imagine that the castle was always a ruin erected for the amusement of the cheap tripper for jest and playground. Happily care is usually bestowed upon the relics that remain, and diligent antiquaries excavate and try to rear in imagination the stately buildings. Some have been fortunate enough to become museums and some modernized and restored our private residences. The English castle recalls some of the most eventful scenes in English history, and its bones and skeleton should be treated with respect and veneration as an important feature of vanishing England. Chapter the I Vanishing O Our vanished churches No buildings have suffered more than our parish churches in the course of ages. Many had vanished entirely. A few stones or ruins mark the site of others and iconoclasm has left such enduring marks on the fabric of many that remain that it is difficult to read their story and history. A volume, several volumes, would be needed to record all the vandalism that has been done to our ecclesiastical structures in the ages that have passed. We can only be thankful that some churches have survived to proclaim the glories of English architecture and the skill of our masons and artificers who wrought so well and worthily in olden days. In the chapter that relates to the erosion of our coasts we had mentioned many of the towns and villages which have been devoured by the sea with their churches. These now lie beneath the waves, and the bells in their towers are still set to ring when storms rage. We need not record again the submerged Ravensburg, Dunvike, Kilnsey, and other unfortunate towns with their churches where now only mermaids can form the congregation, and as the fisherman strays when the clear cold eaves declining. He sees the round tower of other days in the wave beneath him shining, in the depths of the country, far from the sea. We can find many deserted shrines, many churches that once echoed with the songs of praise of faithful worshippers, wherein were celebrated the divine mysteries, and organs pealed forth celestial music, but now forsaken, desecrated, ruined, forgotten, the altar has vanished, the rude screen flown, foundation and buttress are ivy grown, the arches are shattered. The roof has gone, the mullions are mouldering one by one, 
foxglove and cowgrass and waving wheat grow over the scrolls where you once could read Benedicite. Many of them have been used as quarries, and only a few stones remain to mark the spot where once stood a holy house of God. Before the Reformation the land must have teemed with churches. I know not the exact number of monastic houses once existing in England. There must have been at least a thousand, and each had its church. Each parish had a church. Besides these were the cathedrals, chantry chapels, chapels attached to the mansions, castles, and manor houses of the lords and squires, tuums houses and hospitals, pilgrim churches by the roadside, where bands of pilgrims would halt and pay their devotions ere they passed along to the shrine of St. Thomas at Canterbury or to Our Lady at Walsingham. When chantries and guilds as well as monasteries were suppressed, their chapels were no longer used for divine service. Some of the monastic churches became cathedrals or parish churches, but most of them were pillaged, desecrated, and destroyed. When pilgrimages were declared to be fond things vainly invented, and the pilgrim bands ceased to travel along the pilgrim way, the wayside chapel fell into decay, or was turned into a barn or stable. It is all very sad and deplorable, but the role of abandoned shrines is not complete. At the present day many old churches are vanishing. Some have been abandoned or pulled down because they were deemed too near to the squire's house, and a new church erected at a more respectful distance. Restoration has doomed many to destruction. Not long ago the new scheme for supplying Liverpool with water necessitated the converting of the Welsh Valley into a huge reservoir and the consequent destruction of churches and villages. A new scheme for supplying London with water has been moved and would entail the damming up of a river at the end of a valley and the overwhelming of several prosperous old villages and churches which have stood there for centuries. The destruction of churches in London on account of the value of their site and the migration of the population, westward and eastward, has been frequently deplored, with the exception of All Hallows, Barking, Street Andrews Undershaft, St. Catherine Cree, Street Dunstans, Stepney, St. Giles, Cripplegate, All Hallows, Staining, Street James's, Aldgate, Street Sepulchres, St. Mary Wolnoff, all the old city.